you should assume if you've got an Australian passport that you're a resident of Australia unless you can demonstrate that you have a permanent place of abode outside of Australia. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 154 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Our tax residency rules in Australia have been a point of contention for many years. The Board of Taxation submitted its review of these rules already in August 2017, but at least to outsiders, not much seems to have happened since then with respect to legislation. But The courts are busy as ever dealing with the fuzziness of our tax residency rules. And one of the latest court cases that caught a lot of media attention is the Harding case. The question of whether Mr. Harding was an Australian tax resident in 2012. I asked Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney to tell you more. Yeah. Mr. Harding goes home. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, What happened to Mr. Harding? The, the case of Mr. Harding's thrown a bit of a... Uh, Does a, he know that he's famous in Australia? I think he probably would because the, the Harding case has been mentioned in, in the ABC and, and in the mainstream media where um, it's quite unusual for tax cases to, um, to, to sort of to make a mention in, 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 the, in the normal press. Um, usually we're sort of delving through law reports to, to, to read about tax cases. But in the case of the, the Harding case, it's, it's, um, the facts are pretty well summarised in, in, in various articles. But the case has really thrown um, another spotlight back on um, the issue of tax residency for individuals and how tough and complex it is. Um, I think the Board of Taxation is doing a review of our residency rules, isn't it? Yeah, correct. And again, with, with, the, with the Board of Tax process, I was involved in the consultation for that as well. Um, so yeah, at the same time, we've got, we've got this, this case, which is really difficult and grey and, and sort of goes against, um, or at least the initial decision went against sort of what people thought it should be. And then also you've got the Board of Tax acknowledging that the tax residency rules are written back in the 1930s and really haven't changed and they haven't really, they're not really appropriate anymore for modern times. There's, there's too much grey. Um, there needs to be more certainty so taxpayers can, you know, look at the tests and sort of work out which side of the line that they, that they fall into rather than these grey concepts. Why does residency even matter? Because we are a high-tax country. Yeah, well, essentially residency does matter because we're a high-tax country. It really matters the most where you've got a person who may or may not be a resident of Australia and is earning income in a low-tax country. So they're in, say, the United Kingdom. It might not matter that much. You've got tax offsets and so forth. But if they're in the Middle East or some parts of Asia where they're paying quite a low level of tax, then it really makes a big difference whether they're a resident or not. Simple example, if, if someone's working in Dubai, or, for instance, they might not be paying any tax there. So if they're a resident of Australia, they'd be subject to tax on their worldwide income rather than just their income that's sourced in Australia. There's actually a number of reasons why this whole residency test is relevant. And just to canvas through a few of them, the tax rates are different. So if you're a non-resident, you don't get the benefit of the lower 
tax thresholds, for instance, the, the tax-free threshold. So for the purpose of tax rates, it can actually be better to be a resident. For CGT purposes, there's differences as well. So if you're a non-resident, you don't get access to the 50% CGT discount anymore. But on the flip side, you're only subject to tax on taxable Australian property, which is generally land and interests in land. The main resident CGT exemption is a bit of a wait and see whether this is actually going to come into effect or not. But a non-resident proposed is not going to be entitled to the main residence exemption. And you've also got complex rules like the controlled foreign company and controlled foreign trust rules that apply if you're a resident of Australia and they attribute income from foreign controlled trusts or companies back to their Australian shareholders. So at the moment, most disputes are about somebody claiming not to be a resident mm. and the ATO arguing that somebody is an Australian resident. Correct. But if the main residence exemption changes come through, mm. then we will probably see more court cases where somebody argues that they are a resident and the ATO argues that they are not a resident. All of the case law in the last sort of 10 years or so has been essentially individuals working generally in the Middle East claiming not to be residents and the ATO saying that they are residents. But I could think of a number of scenarios where taxpayers would actually want to claim that they are residents of Australia and the tax office could be arguing that they are not residents of Australia. For instance, the main residence exemption, the 50% CGT discount, just to give a few examples, and then the, the tax-free threshold as well. These cases usually deal with bigger numbers bigger dollars, than yeah. the tax-free threshold. Exactly. Yeah, definitely the point's taken. So what are these residency tests? As you can understand already, they're not simple. So there's, there's actually four different tests that determine residency. If an individual satisfies any of the four tests, then they're a resident of Australia. First test is called the resides test. The legislation simply says if you reside in Australia, you're a resident of Australia. Now that sounds somewhat circular, but this concept of resides falls back on old English case law. It's not defined and you've really got to go through case law to work out what the meaning of resides is. And, and that's why it's called the common law test. Yes, this is the common law test of resides. There are a number of cases which do summarise some of the factors that should be taken into account. But ultimately, recent courts have stressed there's no checklist that can substitute for the test. The test is, do you reside in Australia under the ordinary meaning of the word reside? Now, that can be very, very grey in some circumstances where you've got you know, split families, people spending a decent chunk of their time overseas, but they own a house in Australia, they might have spouse and children in Australia. So it can be actually quite difficult in certain circumstances to work out, do you reside in Australia or not? Just, I mean, what does the word mean? Like, we're going to have a debate about what the, what the meaning of the word is. So I won't go further into that one, other than to say, it's extremely complex. And it's, it boils down to common law concepts. Assuming you're not a resident under the ordinary meaning of the word resides, you've then got three other tests. Now, the first one is called the permanent place of abode test. Now, what this test does is it says that if you have a domicile in Australia, then you will be a resident of Australia unless the commissioner is satisfied that you have a permanent place of abode outside of Australia. So is, is it, it actually called the permanent place of abode test? Because I always thought of it as the domicile test. The domicile test or the permanent place of abode test. I like to refer to it as a permanent place of abode test, but in reality, it's not called either of those things. It's just a subsection of legislation. So it's important to note that this test only applies where someone has an Australian domicile. Now, domicile is another 
somewhat codified, but it's another common law gray test. Now, generally, someone is going to be domiciled in Australia if they're an Australian citizen. It's quite hard. It's quite a sticky concept and it's quite hard to change your domicile. So in all these cases in the the last 10 years, generally the individuals concerned have been Australian citizens and for that reason they've generally had a domicile in Australia. For the taxpayers in those circumstances, they've they've needed to argue that, that the commissioner should be satisfied that their permanent place of abode is outside of Australia. Oh, I see. Okay, I, I didn't know that. So yeah. just as a rough sum of rule, anybody with an Australian passport is assumed to have their domicile in Australia and hence are a tax resident unless they can show that they have a permanent place of abode somewhere else. Correct, yeah. You should assume if you've got an Australian passport that you're a resident of Australia unless you can demonstrate that you have a permanent place of abode outside of Australia. So to take a simple example, if you're backpacking around the world, if you're an Australian citizen and you're backpacking around Europe for a year, then you're not going to have a permanent place of abode. You're just travelling around and yet you'll be a resident of Australia under this test. And this test has generated quite a lot of interest in, in the recent cases. I'll delve into a bit more when we get to Harding's case. So the first test is the resides under ordinary concepts. The second test is the domicile or permanent place of abode test. The third test is the 183-day test. And this can lead to a bit of misinformation. So what the 183-day test says, if a taxpayer is physically present in Australia, either continuously or intermittently during more than one half of the year, then they're a resident of Australia. So it's one half of the year. It's naturally, to pick up on your point earlier, it's actually not called the 183-day test. It says more than one half of the year in Australia, you're a resident unless the commission is satisfied that your usual place of abode is outside Australia and you don't intend to take up residence in Australia. What that's getting at is you could have an individual who does spend more than 183 days in Australia one year, but all the other signs point to the fact that that was just a bit of an anomaly and they really don't consider Australia home. So because otherwise you've got a very bright line. So can one say that putting the first test for about residency aside, that all Australian citizens fall under the domicile test or the permanent place of abode test, as mm. you call it. And then anybody who is not an Australian citizen could fall under more than half of the year test, which I call the 180 test. 180 Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive, though. You, you've got to consider any individual has got to consider all of the tests. But yes. So all Australian citizens fall under the domicile test and potentially under the 183-day test. Yeah. But non-Australian citizens wouldn't fall under the domicile test, but they might fall under the 183 Yeah, yeah, correct. So the 183-day test is more of a bright line test that say, okay, if you're over that many days, you're a resident of Australia, there is some get-outs to it, but the get-outs are a bit harder. But the myth is that if you've got less than 183 days, a lot of people have assumed, well, I've got less than 183 days, I'm not a resident of Australia. But I have an Australian passport. Yeah, but I have an Australian passport. Or even if I don't have an Australian passport, I could be resident under ordinary concepts. Um, it's not the case. So this is just one of the tests. So if you're let here less than 183 days, you won't satisfy the 183-day test, tick, but you've still got to consider those other tests. Now, the fourth and final test is a smaller one. It, it really gets at people who are members of certain public sector 
superannuation schemes. It's, it's really designed towards certain public servants. The test has limited relevance yes, now. Yes, I've never heard a court case that was about this forced There is one case that was about 10 years ago, but it's not, it's not a... It's very black and white whether you fall within that or not. So that all of the decisions in this space have been regarding the residence under ordinary concepts test and the domicile permanent place of abode test. So... Oh, so not even the 183 days. There's been one or two, but... The, so, so most of it is about domicile or residence? Yeah, most of them are about yeah, residence under ordinary concepts or domicile and permanent place of abode. There's been a, a whole lot of cases. And the surprising thing is the cases have gone both ways. So in some circumstances, taxpayers have been held to be not residents of Australia under those tests. And in other circumstances, they've been held to be residents of Australia. And do you agree that it's not always clear why it falls one way or the other? It's very hard to work out sometimes to make that assessment, especially where it's very close to the line. I think the difficulty courts have to grapple with is that the the cases that come up, generally there is a split between where the individual has their business or employment activity, which is generally outside of Australia, and where their sort of family activity is. So... Just to give you a simple example, spend almost the whole year outside Australia and you're doing this for many years. Let's say over a five-year period, every year, most of the time you're outside Australia and you're working in the Middle East, generating large income, spending most of your time there. But you have a spouse and maybe some dependent children in Australia. The Middle East is often not a place where you take your family, hence the family stays back in Australia, and that's where the whole issue starts. Yeah, yeah, you might have own a residence still in Australia, and you might even say, and you might not say this publicly, but the plan is always that once you're done your stint there, that you are going to move back to Australia. So from a policy perspective, the ATO and Treasury want these people to be subject to tax in Australia because in one sense they are, as a family unit, they are getting the benefits of being in Australia. Yes, they're sending the, the kids to Australian schools, they're using Australian hospitals. They Yeah, but, but residency itself is worked out on an individual basis. It's not a family assessment just because, you know, my spouse is a resident of Australia or my children are a resident of Australia does not by necessity mean that I am a resident of Australia because it's not a family unit test it's going to be worked out individual to individual. But this real big fault has, has opened up where you've got business interests overseas and and family in Australia. If both of those things are in the same spot, so business and family is in Australia or both are overseas, generally more clear cut which way it's going to go. But in a lot of these cases, and Mr Harding is an example, there's a bit of a fault line between the two. Yes. And so I think there's only really a chance to argue that you're not a resident if the... um, marital relationship breaks down. I think in a lot of these cases where it did go the taxpayer's way, yes. the, the marriage broke up sometime during during the five or six years and, and hence the connection to Australia within this family unit dissolved. Correct. And for instance, the case of the engineering manager and the Federal Commissioner of Taxation is a 2014 AAT case the taxpayer was estranged from their wife. And I believe in that case, they actually had to lead evidence about that fact because leading that evidence actually assisted that taxpayer 
in being held that they weren't a resident of Australia because they said, look, okay, I do have a spouse in Australia but and I do spend some time in Australia. But, see my but it's to see my children. We're estranged. They, you know, spouse went to see a divorce lawyer last year. It's really just a facade for the children. And actually leading that evidence actually helps. If it's, if it's a happy and stable relationship, it's much more difficult to argue that um, the, the person is not a resident of Australia. I guess it's in a, in a sort of a layman sense, it's your heart is, is still in Australia. But that's why these cases, I find these residency cases, they feel inc- incredibly private and intrusive. They're extremely, like, you know, they, yeah. They argue where the person slept in the house when he came to see his children. Mm. They argue how many clothes the person took with them and yeah. how much of their personal effects were still back in Australia. It goes in, in, into incredibly personal Yeah, and, and most tax cases are not like that. They don't go into that level of, of personal detail. But the thing is with residency that it really boils down to the facts and it's really about very personal and private information. And, and when you're trying to give a client um, an assessment of whether they're a resident or not, you've actually got to ask them all these, all these questions and sometimes clients might say, I don't know, why are you asking me 50 different questions about you know, where my goldfish is? And say, well, that's, the, that's what the ATO is going to consider. That's what a court's going to consider. Yeah. But that's why it's in all our interest to simplify this somehow so that the courts are not get bogged down with where somebody sleeps when he sees his children or yeah. where somebody's goldfish is left, etc. Yeah, well, I think I think what's been proposed, and it, there's not so much clarity, unlike the Division 7A, it's not sort of at that stage. It's that's still a in the, solution or a clear path. Yeah, it's still, it's still sort of in a, in a more embryonic stage. But what's being proposed is a number of sort of more bright line tests similar to the 183 day test it could be a series of five yes no type assessments and if you get more than three of them you're a resident or it could be like a points-based system sort of like the 100 point id check might get 30 points for being an australian citizen and could get 15 for having a house in australia could be a points-based system they're all things that can be fairly easily determined yes or no some of them might be a little bit more qualitative but you could at least have, you know, a number of different factors and you can more easily make an assessment of each of those factors. Okay, well, how many points do you get? Is that enough to fall over the line? And it would remove a lot of this uncertainty. The cases that you see in the AAT and the federal court are only tip of the iceberg. There's lots more that don't get to the litigation stage that taxpayers might settle or you might have a big dispute with the ATO and the ATO eventually agrees that they're not a resident. So 10 cases in courts, it could be hundred that below that or 500 that are below that so the other interesting thing in this space is that a lot of the time the the people that are affected by this they've got their own sort of communities overseas if they're a pilot there might be other pilots or if they're an engineer manager there's there's other people and they do talk and one say oh you know i took on the ato and i won and therefore you should have the same result but it all depends on your actual personal circumstances it matters how many days back in australia you spent you know are you estranged from your partner do you have dependent children it it can vary just from one person to the other and that's the danger in this area as well and that's why it's important to sort of get advice as well because you can't rely on what happened to someone else The Harding case is perhaps the most interesting case in this area and it's, it's actually been two cases now. So 
In Mr. Harding's... How, how come there are two cases? So there was the original case, the original federal court case, which was a single judge. In the original case, Mr. Mr. Harding, Harding lost. lost. So he actually won on one of the arguments. He won on the argument that he was not a resident under ordinary concepts, but he lost on the argument that he had I'm a permanent crazy. place of abode outside of Australia. So he got a tick on one, but you need, he needed to get a tick on two. So And he, I think he changed the apartment a number of times and that's why it was argued that yeah. he didn't have a permanent place of abode. And so the whole judgment went into exactly how many suitcases he used and how he moved the suitcases from one yeah, apartment to the other. Co- so correct. There was a description of the elevator. And yeah, it was quite, quite detailed. So very broadly, what happened in Mr. Harding's case was that he worked in the Middle East for a number of years. He married and had children. They decided in, I think, about 2004 that it was no longer appropriate, political instability and so forth, to continue to, to raise children and, and live in that area and wanted to move to Australia. In 2004, him and his partner purchased a property in Australia. And, and I think they were married. Yeah, they were married, yep. The wife and the children moved to Australia in 2004. He said, okay, well, I'll move too, but I can't move straight away. So finish up. 2006, I'll move to Australia. So he did move to Australia from 2006 to 2009. Uh, got a job, wasn't really happy with it, liked the lifestyle working in the Middle East. So he said, okay, well, I'm going to go back to the Middle East. And so in 2009, he said, I'm going to go back to the Middle East. And my plan is to bring my family with me, but that's not going to happen straight away. So Went back in 2009 and because it was just him by himself, he, he got sort of foot furnished accommodation. So it was in this building and it's called Charter Towers building, I believe. What happened from 2009 to 2011 was in a broad sense, there was a plan to relocate the family to the Middle East. So for instance, they actually enrolled a child in, a, in overseas school. Why does it matter whether he had the intention of bringing the family or not? Why does it matter? Is it for or against him? It was for him. So so there's two tests that needed to be considered. And the ATO were arguing over, I think, the 2011 income year. It was either 2010 or 2011 income year. So Mr. Harding had to establish that he wasn't a resident of Australia under ordinary concepts. So, oh, so that his apartment was the permanent place of abode because his family was going to come to that apartment. For the permanent place of abode test, just on the ordinary concepts test, as a negative, he owned the place in Australia and he did spend some time in Australia because he did come back between 2009 and 2011 to visit. But he had won the reside test, so why do we go back to the reside test? He had won the well, reside test. He did win, but it was, a, it was a lot of work to get to that win. So he had to first win on the resides okay. test and he had to establish, because the ATO didn't accept that he was not a resident under ordinary concepts, he had to actually establish in I court see. that he was a resident under ordinary, con- there was not a resident under ordinary concepts. I see. So the argument yep. that his family was going to join him was to support his claim that he didn't reside in Australia because his family yep. was going to join him, he was never going yep. to come back to Australia. So he had to lead those arguments. So those arguments helped him establish that although he spent time in Australia after 2009, And although he had a property in Australia, he had made a decision, a definitive decision to leave Australia. And any time that he spent back in Australia was solely to mop up affairs in Australia, to action the relocation plan and so on and so forth. So he needed to actually establish that. And it was actually very relevant to the residents under ordinary concepts test. 
So he had to lead evidence that, for instance, he was going to enroll his children in a school in uh, the Middle East and they were going to get a bigger place that they were all going to live in together. So Mr. Harding had to actually lead evidence that there was this relocation plan. And and part of that plan was that although Mr. Harding was living in a a one-bedroom, it was a one- or two-bedroom place at that time, that was just for him at that stage and that when his family came, they would get a bigger place to live because it wouldn't be enough when once his wife and children came to the Middle East. So now that was actually damaging in the original decision because although we've talked about the resides under ordinary concept test, there's still the domicile permanent place of abode test. And so he had admitted himself that it was only temporary accommodation. He didn't dispute that he was had an Australian domicile. So what he had to establish is that he had a permanent place of abode outside of Australia. And because that apartment was only temporary, it didn't count as a permanent place of abode. What the court said is that the place that you're living in, it was fully furnished and you didn't really bring many things to it. In the words of the court, I don't want to paraphrase them, but they essentially said you could pack your suitcase and move in a day. And it did actually happen. He did actually move from one apartment to another. Um, he did have a written lease, but because the place was furnished, they said that that little hole in the sky was not a permanent place of abode because you owned, you didn't intend to live there for very long because one, you moved, and two, when this relocation plan would take effect, you were going to move and you've already actually led that as evidence in, in to try to get over the line on the first one. So they said... Well, this concept of permanent place of abode, it requires a particular dwelling apartment house to be your permanent place of abode. So the court said, well, you didn't have a permanent place of abode. It was just temporary. It was transitory. You you were going to live there for a while. It wasn't sort of um, long term. That was the original decision. The case was then appealed to the full federal court. And now, interestingly, it was appealed by the ATO and it was appealed by Mr. Harding. So Mr. Harding appealed the case because... That's interesting. Yeah. So the ATO won and they still appealed it. Correct. Why did they do that? Because they wanted because more they, Because they lost on the residency's point, even though it didn't matter for the dollars in this case. So the ATO really screwed up there then because they lost on the residency point and they wanted to win on the residency point. So they appealed They They appealed. And then they lost the whole thing. Yeah. Well, well Mr. Harding also appealed. So it would have gone there anyway. Right. But the ATO weren't happy with that side of the decision. So they did re-examine whether that position was correct or not. So they basically wanted to reopen. There was one battlefield, but they wanted to reopen the second battlefield so that they would have two chances. Because from the ATO's perspective, it's, it's wider than just this one case. It has massive implications for all other people. For Mr. Harding, obviously, he's more concerned only about his own facts and circumstances. But for the ATO's perspective, it's precedent. It's going to affect a lot of people and they've got to administer the law as well. So so they did appeal it as well. What it came down to in the full federal court is is it, they really looked at this concept of a permanent place of abode. And they said that this concept of permanent place of abode, they had to trawl back through, back to the 1930s about why this legislation was put in in the first place. And it was really a question of what, what does permanent place of abode mean? Does it mean a dwelling? Or does it mean a city? Does it mean a state? Does it mean a country? What, what, what does it even mean? Or does it just mean like anywhere outside Australia? Could you just be boat in the ocean, you know, cruising around a large cruise ship like the world or something? Is that enough to have a permanent place of abode outside Australia? So what the original court said was it needs to be a, a dwelling. But the full federal court said, no, it's a wider concept than that. It can be a city, it can be a country, but it needs to be at least a country. So you need to be able to say that, okay, well, 
my permanent place of abode is Bahrain. I might be moving from apartment to apartment, but you don't just look at the, yeah. the actual property. It's wider than that. Yeah, and didn't Mr. Harding swap countries at some stage? I think at some stage he was living on one side of the border and then he moved a few kilometers to the other side of the border just temporarily. Uh, he was he, he had his accommodation in, in Bahrain. Uh, but he worked across the border. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yep, yep. I see, and hence that would be difficult to argue that his permanent place of abode was in one country when he commuted to another country every day. Because there was another case where that happened as well, but the court did hold that his permanent place of abode was Bahrain. It didn't have to be a particular dwelling. It could be broader than that. Yeah, and it didn't matter that he commuted across yeah, the border. Yeah, yeah, it, did, it didn't matter because he had enough. It was it was clear from the evidence that he decided to, to, to make Bahrain, Bahrain the home. With the personal fact, it actually got even more detailed about it because evidence led about what happened after the 2011 year. So even though the year of income concern was 2011, there was a lot of facts led about what happened after that year, even though it's sort of almost like the benefit of hindsight and what actually happened was that he did actually split up with his wife and formed a new relationship. And I think that relationship was from 2012 to 2015. He then moved country again and then split from that relationship and then married another woman. But it was evidence led to by by so evidence led to support Mr. Harding's case that his center of gravity was his employment and the Middle East rather than family. So even though these Evidence was led about things that happened after the income year um, in question, that those were actually sort of relevant considerations, which is it's a bit hard because you're assessing a particular income year, but you're sort of thinking about things both sides of that income year. And yeah, so I, I think the full federal court did get to what is a logical outcome at the end of the day. It didn't sort of sit quite right in, in the single judge decision. Um, and when I say that, I'm not talking about the legal aspects of the decision i'm just more thinking about from the optical perspective you've got this person they've decided to leave australia and they're not going to come back they shouldn't be a resident of australia the technical point that was clarified in the full federal court yep. is that a country can be a permanent place of abode yes yes so so picking up on the domicile test if that decision stands and it is actually on appeal to the high court i believe if the decision stands, then if you've got a domicile in Australia, you need to uh, establish that your permanent place of abode is outside Australia. And when you argue about whether your permanent place of abode is outside Australia, what it will be looking at is whether you can point to something that's between the size of an apartment and a country and say that that's your permanent place of abode. If you've got some circumstance where you've got ties to three different countries, then um, you might be in trouble because it could be hard to establish which particular country was your permanent place of abode. This actually, issue has actually come up in an even more recent case than Harding. It's called Hansley and it's an AAT case. What happened in that case is the taxpayer lived in Australia for many years and until 2011, he split up with his, um, I believe, wife in 2011 and in 2012, he formed a new relationship with a Philippine national. His work arrangements was that he was deployed all around Asia and the case 
centered on the 2012 income year. What happened in that income year is he didn't spend more than 45 days in any particular country. So he worked in Vietnam, he worked in Malaysia, he spent some time in, in the Philippines, he spent some time in Australia, but he didn't spend more than 45 days in any particular country. Now, because his domicile was still Australia, essentially because he had an Australian passport, he needed to establish that he had a permanent place of abode outside Australia. And if you assume Harding's case was correct, that means that he would need to point to a particular, at least a particular country and he couldn't. being his permanent place of abode. And he had only spent 45 days in a particular country. He did spend some time in the Philippines. It was quite little. And then with work, it was moving around as well. So it wasn't actually possible for him to establish that there was a particular country that was his permanent place of abode. So, um, he, so he lost the case. Yeah. So even though... He'd committed to leaving Australia. He was going to travel around, work in various locations because he didn't, at that stage, and it might have changed for later years because we're only looking at 2012. For that year, because he was moving around, there was no place that was his permanent place of abode. It might have been different in later years. I don't know. It doesn't go into it in the case whether, you know, you know, going forward, he spent all this time in the Philippines or all this time in Malaysia or Vietnam or whatever. But in that particular year, there's no permanent place of abode. So you see that it could change year to year as well because it's not static. You've got to assess these things year to year as well. So as an advisor, it can be really difficult because one year it could be okay, the next year it could be not. It's really hard to work out because the tests are quite grey. Is there a permanent place of abode outside Australia or not? Do they have domicile? What does ordinary concepts of resides mean? There's so many different terms that are not defined that require, I guess, a bit of a judgment call on what what is most important. And as I've gone through, you've talked about different factors. So family, uh, how many days, what kind of property, you know, was it a furnished apartment? Um, what school were the children enrolled? There's so many factors Can that you, you need to... attach pictures to the wall? In the Harding case, it was discussed whether he was yeah. allowed to attach pictures to the wall. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so, you know, did you buy a place overseas? A lot of countries you can't. There's so many factors. And as an advisor, it's about what weight do you place on each of those factors? That could be really hard. And that's evidence, for instance, the Harding case. A judge of the federal court decided one way, but full federal court decided another, and the high court could decide another way as well. So, I mean, you know, these are some of the best legal minds deciding these cases, and, and there's so much grayness just because the tests are grey. So it really demonstrates the need for reform in this area. But I suspect any reform is still a little while away. It does take a lot of work, and Australia's tax rules are very complex as well. So you don't want to rush any reform. You want to make sure you get it right as well. So quite a long process to, to modernise, reform and modernise. But I think there is a commitment to do so. It's evidenced by these cases where having taxpayers having to go all the way to the, in this case, all the way to the High Court to decide the issue. is punching this through the courts to force the legislator to to clean up the mess to basically to say look at all these court cases where we have to decide where somebody can attach a picture or not can you please sort this out i don't think the ato have a particular agenda i, th I think it's just genuinely due to 
a lot of these cases are, are very grey and from a, I guess, a policy perspective, the people do still have some ties to Australia and are getting some benefits of the Australian um, way of life and so forth. Maybe it's not them, maybe it's their children. So where tests are grey, it's a good fertile ground for either the taxpayer or the ATO to try to push their position so i would probably do the same if i was in the, in the ats perspective because it's you know although they've lost in hiding's case there's plenty of other cases where they have won but they've gone both ways welcome back so if you have an australian passport and you no longer want to be a tax resident of Australia, make sure you stay long enough in another country, in only one country, so that you establish a permanent place of abode. Over the next two episodes, episode 155 and 156, Paul Golden of Practical in Melbourne will give you an overview of easy mistakes to make around trusts. So the next two episodes will be a trust 101, so to speak. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Bye.